Thursday night, and this is Farage at Large, live from Sunderland. And we're in the Royal Artillery Club. It's very, very appropriate indeed. And we'll be talking about Remembrance Day, talking about the massive contribution Sunderland has made to this country in all the wars we've ever fought. And we'll also be talking about, about the Red Wall, because a lot of seats in this part of the world voted for Boris Johnson in 2019. But is he still popular with them, or are they beginning to lose faith? everybody here and those watching at home. This is Farage at Large and I today am in Sunderland in the northeast of England which is, and I'm not just saying this because of the crowd here, but it is without doubt the friendliest part of the country and I think probably the most patriotic part of the country too. So it's an absolute pleasure to be back here. Now as you know today is November the 11th. It is the anniversary of course of the armistice, the end of the Great War. It's a moment uh, that we're marking uh, today and we're in the Royal Artillery Club here in Sunderland in a city that today has more ex-servicemen of working age than any other in the United Kingdom and a city that over the years has given just the most massive contribution to this country, the First World War, the Second World War, but all the conflicts since. And we'll focus a lot today not just on what Sunderland's given in the past, important though that is, but those today that are living in Sunderland and elsewhere that are still suffering from the effects of their time, whether it's in Iraq or Afghanistan or Northern Ireland, and we'll talk to some local charities and some ma amazing work that's been going on here in Sunderland to help veterans, and all of that is really, really important. I'll also talk today about the English Channel and what is going on in the English Channel and the lack of coverage that people are getting from mainstream media on what is becoming a very, very major crisis that is affecting everybody in this country. The last show I did was in Folkestone on Farage at Large. Well, that was next door to Dover, where so many people are crossing the channel and coming in, but it's to places like Sunderland where they finish up, so we'll talk about that. But I also want to examine the Red Wall, as it's called. This part of the world had been voting Labour since 1918. Rock-solid Labour, you know? You could put up... It, it wouldn't matter. The proverbial pig's bladder on a stick for the Labour Party, and they would vote Labour, and they always had done. Um, and I think the 1980s, I think the time of Thatcher, I think the closure of so many of the pits kind of reinforced that voting for Labour. But Labour started to lose touch, I think, with the people of the North East, 
And they started doing something very different about 10 years ago. They started voting UKIP. They started voting for a bloke called Nigel. They really did in increasing numbers. And when it came to the 2019 European elections, well, the Brexit party topped the poll in all of these places. Those voters then lent their vote to Boris Johnson in large numbers in the 2019 election. And whilst both of the seats in Sunderland are still Labour, all around here in this part of the world, Redcar, Hartlepool and elsewhere, they went Conservative in 2019. And I want to examine tonight, given that this government has, I think it's fair to say, lost its luster, uh, given that we have the Tory sleaze scandal, which is now in day 12, and shows no signs of abating, given that one of the reasons was they wanted to get Brexit over the line, they wanted their vote in 2016 honoured, but part of that contract was controlling our borders. And so the question I'm asking tonight to this audience, and indeed to you at home, is will the red wall hold, or is it going to fall? Are they falling out of love with Boris Johnson? Well, joining me to discuss that is a man who was a beneficiary of all of this, because it wasn't just seats for Westminster that changed hands, seats at local level here in Sunderland started to change hands. And Paul Donaghy, you are Conservative Party councillor for Washington South. I am, yeah. Uh, you stood as a candidate in 2019. Did you honestly think you had a catch chance in hell of winning? To be honest, no. But I had to take a chance. I had to go for it. I had to stand for what I believed in. Yep. I believed my views and a lot of people's views in Sutherland and Washington were not being represented by the Labour Party locally and nationally. I wanted to take a stand. I took a stand and it paid off. And you were one of half a dozen uh, you know, Conservatives yep. that won seats here in Sunderland. But here we are. It's two years on. And I put it to you that whilst we have got Brexit, and all right, we could do with... The fishing could be better, couldn't it? Yes. Because I'd like Sunderland, I'd like Sunderland and the North East to have 200 miles of that North Sea for ourselves, like the Norwegians have got. That hasn't yet happened. And we know that Northern Ireland is a mess. But we've got Brexit, and Boris has to be credited with that. You know, it happened, uh, and after the dismal performance of Mrs May before, thank goodness for that. But on many other areas, I mean, I'm asking you this question straight. You know, these folk that voted for you in Sunderland, that voted in the general election, Conservative, and started to win seats here in the northeast of England, they actually thought, with Brexit, with a Conservative government, we were going to take back control of our borders. But we're not, are we? Not the way we should have. It's a work in progress. As a local councillor, I can't really influence what happens with the borders. But we, no, should be but do, you, we should be doing a lot more than we are doing. But you get the temperature, oh, yeah, the temperature of, the, of the voters more than MPs do in yeah. some ways. Because I, I they're so busy with their second jobs, you see. They haven't got time. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't get paid enough to be a full-time councillor. But I, I walk the streets every week. I've got a full-time job and I, I walk the streets. I talk to yeah. residents every day of the week when I'm out and about. Brexit is a massive issue. It was an issue that contributed to me being elected and a lot of yeah. Conservatives being elected. What we want and what we expect, it isn't happening the way it should be. But I generally believe, given time, and give the Royal Navy the, the powers to do it properly, we can enforce the borders. But well, um, I think if that was to happen, the government would be very popular. I mean, my fear is we're not doing that, but I'll talk more about that in a moment. But on other areas, other issues, you know, there's been a, a kind of bit of an aversion towards Conservatives in large parts of the North East for 100 years and more. 
And when they see Conservative members of Parliament, albeit from Devon, but Conservative members of Parliament who rarely turn up... In fact, being an MP, I think, actually is, is, is actually Geoffrey Cox's second job as opposed to his first job. And he's earning a million quid a year working for the British Virgin Islands. And, you know, every day a new story comes out about Tory MPs who, who are more interested in making, using their positions to make money, it appears. Yeah. I've got a feeling people up here don't like that very much. But at the same time, you've got more chance of seeing a unicorn than you have seen Sharon Hodgson, who's a Labour MP. You never see her unless she wants something, unless she wants something for the people of Sunderland, or she's trying to back up one of the local Labour Party. So it works, well, both, it works both ways. That, that, that may be true, but that's not where the emphasis is. Yeah. I'm saying to you that a Conservative Party that is dominated by people that went to Eton, is dominated from the South and appears to be in it for itself at the moment, at least that's public perception, I'm saying to you that is a problem up here. Because... Everyone knows those people that voted Conservative in the North East last time round, they weren't joining the Tory party, you know, deep in their hearts. It was a Lent vote. And I think the sleaze thing's an issue. But the other question, Paul, and the last question I want to ask you, the most important question, is when we vote in elections now, general elections, local council elections, we know next time round they're going to say you've done a good job or they're going to say you were hopeless and, 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 and your personality will matter enormously. When we vote in parliamentary elections, we're really voting for who the next Prime Minister is. We're not really voting for the MP in the constituency. And Boris, it seemed to me, coming up here, and I spent time in Sedgefield during the general election and Hartlepool, indeed I was here in Sunderland in 2019, seemed to me that people in the North East quite like Boris. He seemed quite upbeat, he seemed quite optimistic, um, a marked contrast to Mrs May. Um, and, uh, but, but also, I mean, you know, we've been through... Ed Miliband, uh, who was hardly inspiring and a barrel of fun. Um, Keir Starmer, who I don't think is exactly in touch with working-class communities. Boris seemed different. Boris seemed jolly. He seemed optimistic. And we want that in leaders. We want optimism in leaders. I'm asking you a straight question. Has the shine gone? Personally, no. I'm working-class. I'm conservative. I've got my colleagues here, working-class, conservative. Yep. Tides are changing, times are changing. What was a stereotype of a Tory is no more in my opinion. I'm an example of what can be done as a Conservative. Mm. I work hard. My fellow candidates, councillors, work hard. Yep. Just because the concept of a Tory is some posh boy riding a horse with a top hat shooting foxes, it doesn't <laughs> apply anymore. I'm proof of that. And like I say, my colleagues are proof of that. What was the Tory party isn't anymore. We, right. We've proved that in the North. The red wall, as you talk about... Yep. It's, it's not just falling, it's crumbling. I'm very, very confident in next May's local elections, we're going to wipe Labour out. Do you think that trend continues? I, I generally believe that. I and, generally and, believe the trend... And, and, and you think Boris's popularity... And you think Boris's popularity is still there with these people? I generally believe that, yeah. People well, like Boris, people love Boris. Paul Donaghy, thank you very much indeed you, for joining us here, and well done for what you did. <laughs> Now, a subject that I've been covering this week extensively has been the Channel crisis. I pointed out that on Monday, another migrant was found dead on the French side of the Channel. That was the fifth in six days. I pointed out that on Tuesday of this week, 504 people who were legally attempted across the Channel were taken in by border force into Dover. And yesterday, I held up all the newspapers here on GB News and said that none of them had even mentioned it. Well, yesterday, 
695 people came through the port of Dover. And I can go through the Express, I can go through the Sun, I can go through the Mail, I can go through the Mirror, I can go through the Guardian, I can go through the Times, and not a word. To be fair to the Telegraph, they have done a piece on page two. And it's much the same with the other broadcast channels. Now, I've been talking about this issue because it matters. The last show I did, Farage at Large, was in Folkestone. So I was where, you know, basically the entry point for all of this. Um, but here I am in Sunderland. So why should Sunderland actually care? Why should Sunderland really bother about this? After all, Dover is a very, very long way away. First thing I want to say is this. Today in the English Channel is even busier than yesterday. Tomorrow, the number for today when we get it will not be 695. It'll be over 800. Who knows? It could even be 1,000. This is completely and utterly out of control. And 90% of those that come are young men, not poor, desperate women and children. Uh, the vast majority are fit young men. And it matters here in the North East for this one reason, which I'm guessing this audience don't know, but they're about to find out. In terms of where people go once they come into Dover, the North East is the top of the list. There are 17 times more asylum seekers placed in hotels and private residences in the northeast of England than there are in the southeast of England. 17 times the number. The bill for all of this is truly astronomical. And if you look at the polling figures, people in the northeast really care about this. They care about this because they're concerned about the impact on their communities. But they care about this because of the cost of it, because in the end it's the taxpayer, isn't it? that's actually footing the bill for all of this. And they care about this because, actually, in terms of national security, these patriotic people understand we're putting ourselves and our country and our children's future at very considerable risk. And this is an issue that is not going to go away. And it's all well and good, you know, for Paul, the councillor, who was with me a few moments ago, to say that Boris is very popular and it's all going to be great. But actually, in the end... Somebody has to carry the responsibility for this. Because again and again, again and again, Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, and Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, when they're questioned on this, just brush it away. Oh, it's all OK. We're going to sort the whole thing out. And actually what's happening is it's getting worse. Uh, I mean, what happened today in the English Channel, it was an armada. An armada of vessels coming across the Channel. Border force couldn't cope. The volunteer crews of the RNLI, lifeboats all the way down the coast, even into Sussex, with lifeboats from Hastings and Eastbourne having to be mobilised. The thing is out of control. If we don't deal with this, then by this time next year, it'll start to look like the Mediterranean did in 2015. And it won't be 1,000 a day coming, it'll be 2,000 a day coming. And I have, perhaps more than anybody, led with this story, predicted this over the course of the last two years. And just because mainstream media think they can get away with not discussing it is not a reason for me or GB News to go quiet. We are right about this. This is a very, very serious issue. The people in Folkestone care about it. I'm damn certain the people in Sunderland care about it. And something has got to give. Something has got to be done. Now, in a moment, we'll talk a bit more about today, about November the 11th, and about ex-servicemen living here in Sunderland.
Thank you. Now, I asked you at home, is the red wall going to fall? Is confidence in Boris collapsing? And a Twitter follower says to me, the red wall won't fall if we have more councillors like that lad Paul, who was on with you a moment ago. Well, there you are. <laughs> Quite an endorsement for Paul. Um, uh, look forward to watching the show. Always open, honest debate. Shame some can't accept it. Well, no, some people do find free speech very difficult. Jamie says, good to see you, Mr Farage. Thanks for what you've done. But probably today, thoughts should be elsewhere on Armistice Day. They will be. Don't worry about that. And Linda, I asked for a reaction, said, I've got to go out, but I'm recording you. Well, thank you. <laughs> now, I said at the top of the show that I've always found the North East to be the friendliest part of this country, but it also, for me has some very fond campaigning memories. Had some great times campaigning up here. Um, I mentioned already the 2019 European elections. But if I think back to that momentous night in 2016, that night when the ordinary folk, the little folk, stunned the establishment, stunned mainstream media, stunned the political parties, stunned the big businesses, the trade union movement, everybody, Barack Obama. I mean, stunned the whole world. And there was one moment that night that will live in my mind forever. And it happened here in Sunderland. And it made me realise anything was possible. Let's just have a look at that moment again from here in Sunderland and the early hours of the 24th of June, 2016. I hereby give notice that I have certified the following. The total number of ballot papers counted was 134,400. The total number of votes cast in favour of Remain was 51,930. The total number of votes cast in favour of Leave was 82,000. And 394. Well, there you are. It's, <laughs> it's what I've called ever since the Sunderland Roar, because I was in a group of about 300 people, and we, we just couldn't believe. Because Nissan, of course, had been at the centre of all this debate. You know, back in 2000, we were told, well, if we don't join the Euro, Nissan might leave. In the referendum, we were told that if we voted to leave, Nissan might leave. Uh, and what we've seen with Nissan is this magical workforce here in Sunderland, who've done such a great job. Now, big, fresh, new investment for Nissan, which is very, very good news for Sunderland and very, very good news for the area. So all of that is very, very special. Now, I talked a moment ago about Sunderland and its contribution and its loss all through time. But Remembrance Day today, and of course the big national services that will come this Sunday, are not just about things that happened back in history. And before I introduce my guest this evening on this subject, I want to share a piece of news with all of you. And it's about Remembrance Sunday this week. 
And it's good news. The Queen has announced she will be attending the national service at the Senate. Now, joining me now is, is Tom Cuthbertson, MBE, and you're somebody who has suffered as a result of loss of war in recent times. Yes, if you'd like right. to share that with us, please. Yes, right. My son was killed in Afghanistan in two, 2008. He was uh, 19. Yep. Very tough for you. Yep. Very tough for both of you. But you've decided to do something about this. And, and, and it's interesting <clears> because <throat> we have magnificent war memorials to those that served and were lost in the 1418, the 3945, but precious little to those that have served or have been lost since 1945. But you've set up this National Veterans Walk. And just, just tell us what you've done, please. Yeah, well, before that, we did the Brothers in Arms Memorial Wall in Sunderland. After my son was killed, um, we decided to represent every conflict since the Second World War, because a, like, a lot of the... Um, Previous wars before that, you know, and obviously including World War One and Two. This, this was your son in um, the service. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, was just representing like the main cenotaphs was representing World War One and World War Two. So we decided to to build a memorial wall in Sunderland that re represented every conflict since then, from from Palestine right the way through. You know, the Suez Canal, you had right Northern Ireland and etc. Right up, up to present year. So. We did that, and then we, then after that, the veterans walk followed suit. After that, really, if you like, which represented everybody. It's a pathway in, in the town. That so, it's, just to explain to people at home, this is, this, this is a pathway. That so you you've got the memorial, but there's, there's now a pathway that is going to commemorate not just those that were killed, but but those that have served from this area too. Yeah, absolutely. And the, the pathway is right behind the memorial wall. You know, it's, uh, and it's uh, the whole idea is to, to recognise everybody's service because everybody's proud of their service. You know, whether it's yeah. whether they've given their life or whether you know it's nana, granddad, brother, sister. Uh, everybody's got their own individual story and they want that recognition. So we decided to get this pathway done. Southern Council were fantastic, and they helped us along the way. And so everybody's been coming forward buying these these big you know slabs if you like um or plaques um and they're quite heavy they're you know the full of in, in, intricate detail of you know that person's history really no i think it's a fantastic initiative but not content with having done all of that you're now aiming much bigger uh, over in warrington i understand that's right, yeah. I mean, we've, we've been approached by other councils around the country, mm. uh, you know, and I mean right around the country, different councils and approaches. So it's a fantastic idea. Can we do it? Can we copy? Or would you like to do it for us? So, we've, you know, we've said, yeah, we'll actually set up for you and help you. You know, so if there's any, anybody out there that's any local councils that's wanting to do it, you know, we're happy to, uh, to reply. Tom, you're, to you're clearly a very inspiring figure. Well, to be fair, like, I'm not really, but... It's well, you must be, because you're <laughs> hasn't this guy done something amazing? <laughs> I think what you've done is terrific. Uh, you've decided to get up and do something, and it's a memorial that'll be here in Sunderland uh, for all the years to come, and clearly... Warrington, other councils around the country. I think it's amazing, and I think you're right. I think that I think people are proud of the service they've given, and I think people are proud of other members of their family that have given service, and I think to commemorate that is amazing. And I'm very sorry for the loss of your son, Nathan. It must be a terrible thing 
for you both to have gone through, but you have, Tom, mm -hmm. I think managed to turn that around yeah. into something positive, and I congratulate you for doing it. Just amazing what some people can do. You know, if they're determined, they're determined to go out and do something. And, they, and, you know, you've got to have pretty strong will. You've got to be very determined. There are lots of obstacles in your way. But I think Tom has shown just what people can do within their local communities. And it's very heartening, I think, I must say. Now, it's a moment of the show where members of the audience can fire questions at me. Um, and it's called Barrage the Farage. And I, and I do not have pre-sight of what the questions are, because that would be fake and it would be false. So I'm just going to ask uh, those that have got questions, please, uh, you're sitting in the front rows, I think, aren't you? Could you put your hands up, those that have got questions they want to ask? Lady there, please. Has Boris Johnson and Priti Patel been as big of a disappointment to you as they have been to me, especially around this migrant crisis? Yeah, a total disappointment. I mean, Boris himself has never been bothered about borders, never been bothered about immigration. Uh, when he was mayor of London, he actually proposed mass amnesties for people who were illegally in the country. So Boris has always been a sort of metro liberal on this stuff. Uh, Pretty Patel, very different, you know. And, of course, Pretty Patel's parents came into the UK as refugees from Uganda, when that madman Amin, uh, you know, uh, Idi Amin was threatening to kill all the Asians, and they came, um, and that was a very successful migrant group. People who came into this country, assimilated into this country, spoke the language, obeyed the law, worked damned hard, and well done them. Uh, so Priti Patel understands the value, that if you're going to let people into the country, you must decide who they are, and they do need to be suitable. They do need to be people that, can, uh, that are going to integrate. And my, my big fear about so many of those that are coming in, is they're just not going to integrate. And they bring with them um, a set of values that is very, very different to how we think and how we live in this country today. I've no doubt some will integrate and some will make positive contributions, but my fear is that too few will. Uh, and I'm also just desperately worried because almost everyone that comes, they destroy their identity documents, they chuck their mobile phones in the sea, you know, uh, so we can't send them back anywhere. We, by the way, give them new mobile phones. I mean, you know, this, uh, <laughs> you know so, so, so Pretty, I think Pretty understands this and Pretty gets this. And yet, I'm sorry to say, uh, she's done precious little about it. I'm not saying this is easy, because whatever we do, we'll get condemned by Brussels and we'll get condemned by the United Nations, just as the Australians were when they dealt with this back in 2012. But the Aussies, Tony Abbott, the Prime Minister, gripped it and dealt with it. And yes, I'm very disappointed. As I say, not so much in Boris, because I think he just says things to get votes. But I'm disappointed. I'm disappointed in Priti Patel. And I'm increasingly disappointed in this government. Uh, I just feel it's rudderless. I'm not sure what they're for. They seem to court short-term popularity by following what the focus groups or the opinion polls say. Um, and, you know, Councillor Paul put on a very, very brave face about the whole thing earlier. But, you know, the truth of it is, now they're mired back in sleaze, as they were back in the 1990s at the end of the major government, uh, you know, Boris needs to get a grip of the whole thing and pretty damn quickly. Thank you for your question. The next barrage, the Farage, where's it coming from? Sir. 
Okay, uh, Mr. Farage. Uh, before I ask my question, I'd like to, to everyone here tonight say a heartfelt thanks, especially since it's Remembrance Day. In the Second World War, my family, uh, Jewish family in Vienna, had to escape um, the Nazi German Reich. Um, they were very lucky to get passes to emigrate to British Mandate of Palestine. It's the work and the courage and the determination of all the servicemen of the British Army around about that time and following the years of the Second World War onwards that I'm here today tonight, and it brought my family right here. Well said. Yeah. Well said. Well said. So my question is... In the last couple of years, especially given, especially Jeremy Corbyn, leader, former leader of the Labour Party's rhetoric, um, on the subject of Israel and Palestine, he is, a, a lot of members of the left are saying this is the narrative of from the river to the sea, Palestine should be free. The authorities of Palestine are saying that Israel and Israeli lives and Jewish lives should be destroyed and killed. How can we increase the awareness that the name of Palestine is no friend of freedom? Well, I mean, let's just get a sense of balance on this. You know, there are people that back the Palestinian cause who, who are not vehemently anti-Semitic and don't want Israel wiped out. So let's just get a sense of balance onto that. However, one of the problems that the Labour Party has had, uh, and it's happening with, with, with the Democrats in America, is a new hard left has developed. Those of a certain age here will remember uh, this happened with Militant back in the 1980s. But Neil Kinnock, and I've never said much nice about Neil Kinnock over the years, but Neil Kinnock drove out Militant, which actually made Labour an electable party again, and Blair became very much the beneficiary. And it was a hell of a battle against these people. But they're back. It's the Corbyn wing. And he may not be the leader, but they're back. And, yes, a big part of this narrative is anti-Israel. But much of it is code for very deep anti-Semitism, and it's very, very nasty and very, very unpleasant. And you might have seen this week, the Israeli ambassador was giving a speech at the London School of Economics, and, you know, a mob, a mob assembled outside, waving their Palestinian flags, and she had to be sort of ushered off to safety. Um, all I would say to you is, I've got a very good Jewish friend of mine in London who was really worried about Corbyn, really worried, and I said to him, you know, right back when Corbyn was first there in about 16, I said, don't worry too much. I said, because the fair-minded British people, when they see what he stands for, will reject him. And you know what? Fair-minded British people did reject him. And there's no doubt Keir Starmer is a much better human being in that sense than, 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 than Jeremy Corbyn ever was. Um, the question with Sir Keir Starmer is, does he have the charisma to go out and campaign and get back that Labour vote in areas like this. And, and, and I think that's a, a question that the... If I, if I was nice, I'd say the jury's out. <laughs> but, but I don't think he's really got it. So, I, yeah, you know, I understand why it was a difficult period for people of Jewish backgrounds or current Jewish faith, but I think actually we've shown as a country we reject that nonsense. It's never been for us. All right? Thank you. Okay, my next one, please. My next barrage, the Farage. Sir. Uh, do, you, uh, do you believe that the monarchy is at risk of being wiped out if uh, national pride and patriotism is still seen as embarrassing in younger generations? I am worried about what we're teaching our kids in schools. I am really, really worried what we're teaching our kids in schools. Um, I'm worried about our, univer our universities, which frankly have become poisoned, in my opinion. 
Uh, they're just indoctrinating youngsters. I, I, I really worry about that. You know, the point about education is, and it's called critical thinking. You know, you explain to people as they're growing up, look, here's an issue. Here are two ways of dealing with it. You make your mind up. Whether you, you know, whether you, for example, do you think the free market works better in economics or government intervention? You know, do you want the railways to be nationalised or privatised? You present these things to young people, you give them both sides of the argument, you let them make their own minds up. What has been going on, sadly, in too many of our schools and universities, is we say to youngsters, here's a problem, here are two, two, here are two different points of view. One of them is virtuous and good, and the other is evil. It means you're almost a neo-Nazi if you believe it. I mean, it's just incredible. And, 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 and that, is, that is all about rubbishing this country, rubbishing everything this country has ever stood for. And you know what it is? It's the virus. Not coronavirus, but Marxism. It's that virus of Marxism that seeks, seeks to destroy everything about who we are as a nation. And those of us that are older uh, reject this entirely. But there are too many young people who are not hearing enough of the other point of view to form a balanced judgment. And it worries me very, very much. Um, I mean, you know, you, you can't change history. You can't change the values by which people lived 50, 100, 500 years ago. You can't somehow pretend that we're morally superior to them because we have a different set of values. In 100 years' time, people will look back at us and think, weren't they terrible? I mean, it's just the way you, you know, it's the way evolution, human evolution, human thought goes on. Now, the monarchy, which you mention, which, you know, has been very much, you know, the, the sort of centre point of the nation and of our belief system, um, which has served us, you know, post the English Civil War, we, we reached this arrangement of the constitutional monarchy. It served us incredibly well. I'm thrilled with the way the Queen is well enough to attend the service on Sunday. That's really, really good news. But I'm going to say this. And not all of you will like it. I've always believed in the monarchy, and I certainly believe in the Queen. I think she's a magnificent human being. We've been blooming lucky to have her. I am worried about the future of the monarchy, not because of what is being taught in schools, but I'm worried by the actions not even of Meghan and Harry, who are just... Be oh, did you see what happened in the High Court yesterday? When she said, she said she hadn't briefed the people that wrote the book. Oh, when the evidence is produced that they had briefed the authors of the book, she forgot. I mean, you know, I mean, uh, I mean, I mean, frankly, uh, I mean, that interview with Oprah Winfrey, virtually everything she said in that was untrue. Um, so they are... They are discredited in every single way. But it's Prince Charles that worries me. Because part of the constitutional settlement back in the 17th century was that the monarch did not interfere in politics. And Charles is getting too close to big globalist institutions, demanding more legislation. Uh, and and, and you know, he's on this green kick. He's on this we're all going to die stuff. But well, whether he's right or not isn't the point. I think he's getting too deeply involved in politics and he needs to bat out. I'll take one more barrage the farage before the break. Sir. You mentioned sleaze earlier on. I'm just wondering, is there a fair way to allocate honours? And uh, regarding the expenses system, should that be overhauled and tightened up? I will bet you that a lot of people who've been members of this club over the years would say, well, 
you know, the chap next to me, you know, you know, he got a medal and I didn't. And it's not blooming fair. So there's always something about honours where we could, could criticise the system. What is outrageous is for us to have an upper chamber, the House of Lords, which has an important legislative role, to have a House of Lords that is filled up with people who gave Tony Blair, David Cameron or Boris Johnson or Gordon Brown's parties large sums of money. That is a complete and absolute outrage. And I, I actually think that, we, that, that we've got a set of institutions that are still stuck back in the 19th century in terms of how they operate. And I think the point of Brexit means we're now free. We're now governing our own country, all right? It's now a question of how it's governed. And I think there is time for radical reform, reform of the electoral system, reform of the postal voting system, which is so open to fraud and abuse, the abolition of the House of Lords in its current state and its replacement with people who are elected, perhaps for one term only. I want radical change in British politics. Otherwise, if it goes on as it is, nothing's going to change. The only reason we got Brexit is because we, the people, managed to force them to give us a referendum. Parliament on its own would never, ever have done that. So the answer is, all that Tory Sleaze does, all that's going on at the moment, makes me more determined that we need change. It really does. We're going to take a break now. Um, I was, I was going to say the next part of the show was Talking Pints, but I think I'm somewhat ahead of that, really. But there we go. <laughs> Well, here we are in the Royal Artillery Club in Sunderland, as opposed to the GB News pub in London, and it's Talking Pints. And I'm joined tonight by local man, Ger Fowler. Ger, welcome to Talking Pints. And once again, somebody who has decided to do something, not just to see what's going on with our veteran community. And Ger, what I want you to do, please, if you will, is just tell us a little bit about how you got into this position of, of, of understanding and realising something had to be done. And it was, a lot of it was to do, I think, with your service in, in, the, in the British Army in Northern yeah. Ireland. Yeah, so I joined the Army when I was 16, uh, went to Northern Ireland when I was 17. I was involved in a terrorist attack when I was 18. Eight people died. Uh, and I'm not going to blame that on what happened next, but it was the summer of love. I started taking ecstasy, started smoking weed. Kind of this, just, is, this is when you were demobbed, isn't this, it? No, this is why I was still in the army. This oh, really? is why I was still in the army. So, but I wouldn't blame that on what happened to us. I would think that was more of a, a sort of time thing. The end of the 80s, early 90s. Got posted to Berlin. That sort of stuff got worse. So I decided to leave the army because, to be quite honest, you can't have an infantry soldier who wants to cuddle everybody all the time. Um, I ended up leaving, come back to Sunderland, uh, still partying for years, and my best friend from the army uh, killed himself. Um, weren't sure what the reason for that was. Uh, I went to the doctors. After seeing psychiatrists and stuff, uh, I was diagnosed with PTSD from my time in Northern Ireland. Yeah, I mean, the, the particular terrorist attack that you were there at the time with was, was, was pretty awful and pretty shocking. How did somebody who had been through that? You know, how did the army deal with that? 
Uh, to be quite honest, they just tell you to put your bury on and get back to work. They didn't do anything at all. And like, if you think I was an 18-year-old kid and everyone who died was, nobody was over 21 out of the eight lads, um, I think it was pretty shocking, to be quite honest. I mean, I'm not, I'm not uh, resentful of, of it at all because that resentment's gone now. I, I don't know if it's maturity or the passing of time, but I haven't got any resentment for anybody now. So once you're diagnosed with PTSD, you then start to get some help? Yeah, a sort of help. Um, I was given a community nurse that wasn't any good. Then I was given a psychiatrist who was about 22 and told us exactly, said, I know exactly how you feel. And I was thinking, oh, <laughs> I don't really think you do. So uh, I decided then to kind of just drop out of treatment. Um, they put us on antidepressants. Uh, I was smoking a lot of weed. I was drinking a lot. And then... In 1999, I was involved in a, which is, sounds kind of funny now, but I was attacked by dogs, right? right. So, and I, I was nearly killed, so I ended up with really bad injuries. I got 28 stitches in my arm, I had three discs out of my back. And because of that, I ended up addicted to painkillers, opiates. Um, that went on for about 10 years, something like that. Uh, and uh, considering all the other drugs I took to enjoy myself, I'd done nothing to us, and now the, the stuff the doctor had given us, I ended up addicted to that. Uh, I got to a stage um, when, unfortunately for me, somebody had said that I was smoking weed. My house got raided off the police, and that was a wake-up call. And luckily, them people did that to sort of ruin us, but it changed my life for the better, really. Well, so so that, that was the wake-up call yeah, you needed? From that day, it'll be 12 years on New Year's Eve, from that day I haven't smoked weed or anything, and I stopped all uh, antidepressants, I stopped all the opiates, all on that day, and I stopped drinking for a bit as well. And now... You've set up an organisation. I want you to yep. tell the audience what it is and what it does, because I'm so, really fascinated by it. So, another thing that happened to us, I was in my parents' house and my dad died, we, and I'd give him CPR and it didn't work. So I had a bakery at the time with my niece, and uh, I just thought, I want to do something that, where I help people. So I ended up volunteering at a homeless charity, and when I was doing that, I was finding quite a lot of ex-servicemen in the hostels of Sunderland that weren't getting any help, because there's no... Um, there was no RBL kind of presence in Sunderland. So really, you had to get to Newcastle, you had to have a mobile phone, you had to have the internet. I think 10% of people sleeping rough on the streets in this country are people who've been in the yeah. services. I mean, yeah. it's hard to believe. And it, so I decided to start something myself, so I did it in my own time. Then the charity I worked for, that we didn't really have the same morals, so I left and set up on my own. Uh, I was lucky enough to... I was well. Unfortunately, I was doing a talk at St James's Park, but luckily, <laughs> luckily, for those for those at home that don't get it, there is in this part of England quite considerable rivalry <laughs> between Sunderland and Newcastle. Okay. <laughs> so when I did the talk, I was lucky enough. There was a lady called Jessica and uh, from Sunderland Council, and a lady called Gloria from Sunderland CCG. So we talk, and they uh, said, "Do I want to do a little bit of work for two months?" Because of that, I just carried on doing it. I used my own money. Uh, I actually started with a £10 page you go mobile phone. And this is, and was, it, was it at the time called Veterans in, in Crisis, Crisis Sunderland? Yeah, 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 it was. Yeah, and uh, I just used Greg's as my office, to be honest. Just used to take the clients and uh, buy them a cup of and, uh, it's basically You just do snowballed. go for the healthy options with everything, yeah, don't yeah, you? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and it just snowballed from there. Uh, I'm lucky enough to get sort of 
the backing of everyone from Sunderland, so the top of the council all the way to the man in the street, every single person I've asked for help's helped. Um, and I can only thank them enough because if it wasn't for them, it wouldn't have worked anyway. And in terms of what you offer now for ex-servicemen in this yeah. area that are in trouble, it's meetings, yeah. it's get-togethers. So we have, a, we have a coffee morning here every Tuesday, but we've actually bought our own peers up front now, so we own a four-storey building, which has a, an office, a drop-in, an emergency apartment for a family of four, a therapy centre and a podcast studio with an IT suite. How did you do all this? I don't know, I just blagged me way through <laughs> <laughs> How do you raise the money to do all this? I mean, well, it's incredible. We, we were lucky enough to, um, when I first started, I knew a guy who was a bid writer and he'd started community interest companies before, so I went to see him. So he's been like sort of the backbone for us. I, I, I picked people who would really help us. I made partnerships with people that could help us. Uh, and, you know, it's forward thinking, that's all. And luck. Well, you wow. make, I, I think you make your own luck, Joe, yeah, really. I think that's phenomenal what you've done. And, and I was reading about the case of one particular veteran, um, just referred to by his initials, SS. Okay. Just to tell us about the case. There's a really remarkable story about that, that, about that one individual and what you did for him. So, you better show us him, because I've got loads of cards. <laughs> oh, right, well, that was the one I got. But... Oh. All right, so that young lad, um, he came to us one week to the meeting and um, he attempted suicide. So when he came in, it's not like any other service. Basically, everyone was just winding him up about it, about, about him committing suicide. It's really quiet. Came the next week, there was a new guy there, and he was like, it's brilliant here, because I felt much better when I left. So, because he came a few times, we ended up getting him uh, a job, uh, got enough benefits, got him a place to live, uh, and he's just had a child, actually. So. Fantastic. No, it's really, really good. Well I've been very inspired by some of the people that have been up here today and I've met in Sunderland and, and real get up and go attitude. And tell me, November the 11th, Remembrance Sunday coming up this weekend, what does it mean to you? Uh, to be honest, it means everything to me. I, what I try to get across is, it, it's, I know it's one day for everybody else, but this is what we do every day. You know, people should remember every day. And I'm lucky in Sunderland people do remember every day. Everyone I ask, people raise money all the time. There isn't one group or one person that I've asked for help that said no in Sunderland. So right. it's, it's just a tremendous like. And when it comes to what happens this Sunday, uh, my understanding is that the turnout at your own cenotaph here in Sunderland is the second biggest in the whole country yeah, after, yeah. after what goes after on down London, in London. Yeah. And that's always been the case. Yeah. What, what is it about this part of the world? It's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> brilliant. There is something, there is something amazingly patriotic, clearly, about Sunderland and its massive contribution that it's made, and you were part of that, and you're one of those, there aren't so many around now, you know, in, in this age bracket that have been through and understand what loss and death and, and, and horrible things can happen uh, fighting in these conflicts. Ger, you've done it, you've come through it, uh, you've obviously had some very, very tough times. You've come out the other side, you're doing great work for other human beings. Last question for you. You've managed to get this going in Sunderland. How do we get this going in more parts of the country? Everyone has to move to Sunderland. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, that was my guest, Ger Fowler, on Talking Pints today.
Well, we're coming towards the end of the programme. Um, I've really enjoyed being here in Sunderland. It's a very moving day. It's an important day. Um, it's Remembrance Day. Great community, wonderful people.